Hello and welcome. You're listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show podcast. Join me as we go delving through the archives to find out about people, places and events that happened in the past. These were stories that were big news in their day, but are largely forgotten now. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at Backtracker UK with a capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. Today's sorry tale occurred in the year 1903, but what else happened that year? On January the 4th, Topsy, a female Asian circus elephant, is killed by electrocution at Luna Park, Coney Island, New York. And 13 days after her death, on January the 17th, the Edison Manufacturing Company released the short black and white silent documentary film Electrocuting an Elephant showing the footage of Topsy's electrocution. May the 24th sees the Paris-Madrid race for automobiles beginning, during which at least eight people are killed. The French government stops the event at Bordeaux and impounds all of the competitors' cars. And lastly, July the 1st to the 19th, the first Tour de France bicycle race is held. Maurice Garin wins it. But our tale is about a ghastly and foul crime which was discovered in Cheltenham on the Monday afternoon of the 13th of December 1903 in Bub's Cottages in a court off York Street. Alice Woodman, who was originally from Uckington, a village near Cheltenham, was found with her head nearly severed from her body and lying by her side was a young man named Sidney George Smith who was also suffering from a terrible wound to his throat. Word of the Week The word I want to tell you about this week is... Cacophony. A cacophony is a harsh mixture of sounds and it descends from the Greek word phony, which means sound or voice, and is joined with the Greek prefix kak, meaning bad, creating the meaning bad sound. So, in a similar way, the word symphony, which means a harmonious arrangement of instruments, traces to phony and the Greek prefix syn, which means together. The unfortunate young couple had been living at number one, Bub's Cottages, in an open yard off York Street, which in its turn leads off Sherborne Street. They'd been there for about two months, 
and their neighbours didn't really know them very well. Some of the neighbours believed that Smith had been in the army for a short time, but by his age, as he was only 21, that didn't really make sense. It was, however, evident that he had found it difficult, if not impossible, to get regular employment, and that he had had to settle with odd jobs as a porter. He was out of work at the time of the tragedy, and also had to leave the cottage through inability to pay rent. Though he was a stranger even to his nearest neighbours, he was a Cheltenham man, and his mother and several brothers and sisters lived in the town in somewhat humble circumstances. His father was working as a plumber and was a somewhat eccentric character. The initial thoughts about the crime was that their financial situation preyed on Smith's mind quite heavily and the possibility of the couple having settled on a suicide pack found some acceptance amongst those who had any dealings with them. Beyond that, there appeared to be very little motive to explain the crime, which was not one committed in a moment of drunkenness or during a sudden fit of anger. The dead girl, Alice Woodman, was also quite young, just 21 years of age. She was a native of Uckington and had been in domestic service in the town. The neighbours said that she had been occasionally heard crying, but it's possible that her sorrow was due to her young man's troubles rather than any ill treatment he'd done to her. Regardless, they seemed fine on Sunday when they told their next-door neighbour, Mrs Skinner, that they intended to go to Worcester on Monday. Smith declared that he had found a job there, adding that he would leave by the 10.40 train. And so the next morning, Mrs Skinner, realising that she'd heard nothing of her young neighbours, thought she'd be a good neighbour, and making sure he got his train, she tried to wake them up. At about 8.30, she knocked on the front door to remind them that it was time to get up if they intended to catch their desired train. She said that Smith came to the bedroom window and knocked it. She took this as a sign that he had heard her, and that he and Alice were getting up. She therefore went away, but she thought it strange that she heard nothing further of her neighbours during the morning. And so she continued with her normal household duties. The morning passed, and still nothing was seen or heard of the couple, and just after dinner, Mrs Skinner remarked to her son that it was strange, and she once again went to the cottage. At about half past two, she bravely burst into the house using a poker to prise open the door. There were only two rooms in the house, and the one downstairs had absolutely no furniture. They went upstairs. That room was divided into two by a wooden partition. Mrs Skinner was met with a ghastly scene. To quote her own words, she said, I found the two lying side by side on the bed the little wench looking like a piece of marble. In the larger part of the divided room, huddled together on a bed, which was lying on the floor in one corner, were Smith and the murdered woman, Alice. With just one look around the room, you can tell a terrible crime had been committed. The place was like a slaughterhouse, 
and both the occupants of the room were seen to be either dead or dying. Mrs Skinner immediately raised the alarm, and a telephone message was sent to Dr Powell, the police surgeon, asking him to hurry to the scene. This he did. Mrs Skinner had also sent for help from Smith's married sister in Barclay Square, and within a few minutes, two young men named Arthur Stevens and Albert George Kersey were there. They were doing their best to glean what information was possible from Smith concerning the tragedy, but he was weak from loss of blood and couldn't speak, and his answers were only gestures. When asked if he wanted any water, he nodded his refusal, and when he was asked if he committed the murder, he replied in the affirmative and pointed to a paper pinned on the wall, which was a confession of his guilt. When asked whether he would like his sister to be informed, he got very angry. Meanwhile, neighbours had gone to the house to see what could be done. Dr Powell soon arrived and made an examination of the woman, whom he found with her head nearly severed from her body, and it was clear that she had been dead for many hours. He then turned to the man, who also had a serious throat wound, but was still alive. Meanwhile, the police had been called in, and Superintendent Hopkins... Inspectors Parker and Lane and Sergeants Bunker and Hodgetts were quickly on the spot. When the police arrived, Smith once again acknowledged that he had murdered Alice and gave a written confession of his guilt to Superintendent Hopkins. At this point, Smith had been in agony for about 12 hours, conscious all the time that his strength was slowly ebbing away, unable to speak and powerless to turn his head and avert his gaze from the dead body of the girl who had given up all for his sake and whom he had ruthlessly murdered. Her hands lay folded across her chest and the face looked calm and untroubled. In fact, witnesses said they thought that she was asleep and not murdered, though this Smith himself said wasn't so. Smith, the injured man, was swiftly taken to hospital after Dr. Powell had bandaged his throat. Then the examination of the room started and several old envelopes were discovered. On one of these, Smith had scribbled, I've been like this since half past three. On another were the words, I killed her at three o'clock. And in the third one, Smith talked about his sister. The couple were both in their underwear, covered by their scanty blood-stained bedclothes, and it was evident that the crime had been committed hours before. The woman's throat was deeply cut right across, all the important vessels being severed, but the man was still alive. His wound was too close to the chin to be immediately or perhaps ultimately fatal. A blood-stained razor was also found, which the crime had doubtlessly been committed with. Alice's body was lying on a bed, made up on the floor, in one corner of the room, and it was covered with blood, and she was almost entirely nude. Her arms were also smeared from end to end, as though she had struggled against her terrible fate, and a peculiar feature of the crime was that her undergarments appeared to have been torn from her, her corsets being ripped and broken, and other articles torn. They were saturated in blood.
Word on the Street. Today, my weary travellers, we're going to Fiddler's Green, an area of Cheltenham behind GCHQ, which is named after a version of the afterlife where there is perpetual mirth and laughter, a fiddle that never stops playing, and dancers who never tire. And as you can imagine, Uckington, the place where our poor victim, Alice Woodman, came from, well, the signs for that village are often vandalised, with an extra letter scrawled at the beginning. The inside of the bedroom was pitifully sad, not only because of the terrible tragedy, but also because of its miserable appearance. There wasn't much furniture, but there was a small table, and on there were some broken crockery, and the remains of a frugal meal, apparently Sunday night supper. The room was filthy, and the stench was almost unbearable, making the work of the police truly unpleasant. Superintendent Hopkins and his staff left nothing undone, but got through their duties in a prompt and businesslike way, whilst Dr Powell also performed his unpleasant task with skill and forethought. Outside, news of the crime quickly spread, and the whole neighbourhood was up in arms. The deceased and Smith were fairly well known, and the tragic fate of Alice Woodman caused a great shock to those who knew her best. Crowds of people quickly gathered in York Street, but the police prevented their admission into the courtyard. So they stood about in groups, however, and as the body of the murdered woman was conveyed from the house to the mortuary, many of them reverently removed their hats and bowed their heads. The media at the time were shocked by the state of the house, thinking that it was something they'd find in the slums of a great city, and highlighted quite clearly the fact that this garden town was a place of extremes, with a serious housing problem. Meanwhile, at the hospital, it was discovered that Smith's self-inflicted wound, the nasty gash across the middle of his throat, was four inches long, penetrated the windpipe, but didn't damage any important arteries. He was treated by Curtis and Howell, and his condition was not considered life-threatening. Of course, the rumour of the crime spread rapidly, causing excitement in the local area, though the crowd which grew in York Street wasn't by any means large. In fact, knowledge of the affair seemed to be confined to Sherbourne Street and one or two of the adjoining streets. The people generally contented themselves with discussing it at their doors. The group of police under Superintendent Hopkins and Inspector Parker had no difficulty in keeping the knot of silently staring people, amongst which were a number of children, out of the yard and in front of the cottages. When he was well enough and taken into custody, Smith said, I can't think what made me do it. I was in drink. Shockingly, in those days, it was often the reporters that broke the news to relatives of such sad events as this one. One such reporter went to the home of Smith's mother, 
who lived in Cheltenham, to do just that. The old lady, who was bent and almost disabled by a long life of hard work, was 74 years of age at the time. The reporter, at first, only told the poor old lady the injury her son had inflicted upon himself. She was shocked, but not surprised, saying that she always expected something bad would come of him, as his father was a drunk and a bad example to all the children. Her husband, whose name was Arthur Smith, was a plumber in Cheltenham, and her unfortunate boy, who was 22 years of age, was the youngest of 18. Oh, to think that after all my hard work, he should come to this. I can't help it. One hope God will forgive him and take him. When asked by the reporter who was the girl her son was living with, the old lady replied that she was an Uckington girl, had no business to be living with her son, as she was younger than him. They were, she added, going to be married, and they got the money together once, and then they spent it, living together on it. She told how she'd given the couple a house full of furniture, and they promptly sold it, and sold it, until they had nothing left to sell. He was a bicycle maker by trade, and there would be times when he'd be quite busy with odd jobs. He had lived with his mother at St George's Avenue for 18 years until quite recently, but never worked regularly. He was born with a withered arm, you see. The reporter then told Mrs Smith of the death of the girl, presumably at her son's hands. Although greatly shocked, she bore the sad news with touching fortitude and said, I knew the end would be sad. His father tried to commit suicide. He was my youngest son and had noticed to quit his house. He had been going about with this girl doing no work since I left St George's Avenue three months ago. But up to that time, I'd been living with me. A daughter took me away because I could nothing more for myself or him, having lost the use of my limbs with rheumatism owing to hard work. I had to leave his father because he was always drinking, and he was never right when he had drink. Once he cut his throat very badly and was brought before the magistrates, had been in hospital 14 weeks and promised the magistrates to keep from the drink and stick to his work. She did, till got out of their clutches, but I had to leave him again. She added that her son was an alcoholic and she was always afraid of what would happen when he got drunk. Alice Woodman was one of 14 children nine of whom were still living. Her father, James Woodman, was a farm labourer and the family home was a typical little country cottage with dormer windows and overhanging thatched roof known as Moat Cottage. It was in a field close to Moat Farm, a few yards off the main road from Cheltenham to Tewkesbury. On two different occasions, Alice was working as a servant at Hamilton, All Saints Road, Cheltenham. After leaving the first time, she stayed at home for about 12 months, as she was suffering from fits. On the 10th of September 1903, Smith persuaded Alice to leave her home, without her parents' knowledge, and go live with him and his mother in Cheltenham. However, her mother, a day or two later, found out where she had gone, and tried to induce her to return home. But Sidney Smith refused to allow her to go, saying... She's here, isn't she? She's going to stop here. And according to Mary Woodman, Alice's mother, he hit her twice. 
Alice went back to Hamilton's for service for a few weeks, but in early October 1903 returned to Sydney Smith's home, and after that they took the house at one Bob's Cottages. Apart from the violence towards her mother, another cause of Alice's family's dislike of Smith was a quarrel which led to police proceedings on September the 17th at Cheltenham, because Alice had used a box belonging to her sister, a Mrs Stubbs of Uckington, to take her clothes to Smith's, and her sister wanted the box back, going to Smith's for it. The result was another assault, and Smith being fined. Her mother wanted her to come home, but Alice, being 21, thought she could use her own mind in the matter. Both the girl and Smith were quick-tempered. Mary Woman last saw her daughter on the Saturday night, two weeks before meeting her in Cheltenham. None of the Woodman family had visited her in Bub's cottages, and Alice never complained about Smith or their financial dilemma. As a matter of fact, she told her sister, Mrs Stubbs, that she thought about getting married, and when her sister said she hoped they would be happy, Alice replied, I've no fear of that. On the 10th of December, and again on the 13th of December, Smith had said to one man that he would do for himself and Alice, and to another woman on the 10th of December, in the hearing of someone else, he had said that living with Alice Woodman, he didn't like her, he would do for himself, she was the reason he had been brought down to ruin and starvation, and that he could not get rid of her. He was also heard to have said again on the evening of the 13th of December, if I don't go to Worcester tomorrow morning, I shall put a rope around my neck. During investigations into the crime, it was discovered that Smith had visited a barber's shop in the town, and whilst having his hair cut, told the barber that it would be the last time he'd do it for him, asking the barber to cut his throat. The barber, thinking Smith was joking, laughed at him, and told him he would do it to oblige him. It is also stated that Smith afterwards told an assistant at the same shop, that he would... Give him a dollar to do the job? Asking again to have his throat cut. In addition to the sentences scribbled on fragments of paper and found in the room where the tragedy had was committed, Smith also penned a letter to a relative on the eve of the murder. This contained gloomy references to his desperate character and hints towards suicide but nothing about violence towards Alice. There was a witness who claimed Smith had made threats against Alice, mainly because he was angry she had pawned some of his things. The inquest on the body of Alice Woodman took place at the Cheltenham Police Court at noon, Wednesday the 16th of December, and was done by Mr J Waghorn, divisional coroner. As the time of the inquest was never announced, there was no one present beyond the jury, the police officials, including Superintendent Hopkins and representatives. The coroner addressing the jury said, I will just tell you now what I propose to do. You have been summoned to inquire into the circumstances attending the death of Alice Woodman, who was, I understand, a single woman, 21 years of age, who had been living, that is, cohabiting, with a man named Sidney George Smith for some time prior to her death 
at the house at which her body was found, 1 Bob's Cottages, York Street, Cheltenham. The circumstances are, unfortunately, such as I am afraid to lead the conclusion that her death was due to violence inflicted by some other person. She was found Monday afternoon last in the bedroom of this house dead, with her head nearly severed from her body. In the same room was the man Sidney George Smith, who was also suffering from a wound or wounds in the throat. He was not dead, and Dr. Powell, who was called in, ordered his removal to the hospital, where he remains. I am informed that he is progressing satisfactorily under the treatment there, and that with care is likely to recover from his injuries. I don't propose to go into the facts of the case today, but simply to view the body, then take some evidence, identification, in order that it may be buried, and then adjourn to this day fortnight in order to give the police time to make the necessary inquiries, or to, rather, complete their inquiries. Because, of course, the facts have already been carefully investigated, and also in order to allow the man who is at present in the custody of the police opportunity of attending an answer to the charge of the murdering of this woman and offering any explanation he may wish to give before you gentlemen. That I think is the right course to adopt, but whether or not he will avail himself of that opportunity, it is not for us to speculate on. It is sufficient that the opportunity will be offered to him. I do not think any good will be done going into the details reported to me in this case. The unfortunate facts will be presented to you in due course, and till then, you must rest satisfied with what you have already been informed. We will proceed with the inquiry this day fortnight, the 30th of this month. I am told that will be a convenient day for Mr. Hopkins and others concerned. There is also the possibility that by that date, if Smith chooses to be present, he will be able to attend and give evidence. We will go now into the mortuary. I propose to adjourn until 11.30 on the 30th. Uh, the inquest will not necessarily be a long one. There are a number of witnesses, but their statements will not individually be lengthy. After the jury viewed the body, evidence was taken, and then Alice's mother, Mary Woodman, was questioned. I live at Moat Cottage and the wife of James Woodman, labourer. I have seen the body lying at Cheltenham Mortuary, and it is that of my daughter, Alice Woodman. She was 21 years of age on April the 30th, and was a single woman. She had been keeping company with Sidney George Smith for about nine months, and went to live with him and his mother in St George's Avenue, leaving home on the 10th of September last. I don't know where she has been living lately, but I saw her last Saturday fortnight. That was the last time I saw her alive. I met her accidentally in the street. She made no complaint to me beyond saying, I think of leaving Smith and going into service again. She did not tell me where she was living. After Mary Woodman gave her statement, the coroner then began questioning her. Did you ask her? No, sir, I did not. Was she on good terms with Smith? Well, sir, I don't know. I can't say. I think she was in dread and fear of him all through. What makes you say that? I think so. That's the woman's reason, but it's not very convincing. I was told that he had threatened to take her life. But you did not hear him say so himself? No, sir. The Gloucestershire Assizes were held on the 15th of February, 1904 and Smith was found guilty 
but the jury recommended mercy. When the judge passed sentence, he said that the recommendation would be forwarded to the proper quarter, but added that he saw no ground, if there be one, for interfering with the necessary result of such a verdict. Also, the Home Secretary denied the reprieve, and so the date of execution was set for 8am, 9th of March, 1904, and Billington was commissioned to do the deed, assisted by his brother. Smith appeared resigned to his fate and calmly submitted to the pinioning process when he was on the scaffold. The noose was quickly adjusted and the cap placed on his head, the drop then being instantly released. Hey everyone, I'm Andrew And I'm Mariah. And we're the hosts of Pretty Nice. The weekly podcast where we talk anything and everything. Like horoscopes. Why rain is the worst. Our favorite Broadway musicals. The best songs of all time. Embarrassing Facebook photos. Elevator etiquette. Breakfast revolutions. And a whole bunch of other nonsense. If you love a podcast that feels like you're kicking back with your BFFs or just hanging out and chatting with friends, Pretty Nice is for you. You can check us out on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Buzzsprout, or your preferred podcatcher. We're also online at prettynicepodcast.com, on Instagram at prettynicepodcast, Twitter at prettynicepod, and Facebook at prettynicepodcast. Bye! Bye! In the news today, boffins in Bristol have discovered a substance that's blue and smells like red paint. Turns out it was actually blue paint. Back in the day facts. So let's start off with the 17th of June, 1579, when Sir Francis Drake claims the land he calls Nova Albion for England. It's now California. On the 18th of June, 1991, Brian Adams releases the single Everything I Do, I Do It For You. This power ballad was the lead single for both the soundtrack album from the 1991 film Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and also Adams' sixth studio album, Waking Up the Neighbours. It spent 16 consecutive weeks at number one on the UK singles chart, the longest uninterrupted run ever. On the 19th of June, 1978, Garfield's first comic strip, originally published uh, locally as John in 1976, goes into nationwide syndication. As of 2013, it was syndicated in roughly 2,580 newspapers and journals and held the Guinness World Record for being the world's most widely syndicated comic strip. The 20th of June, 1975, the film Jaws is released, becoming the highest grossing film of that time and starting the trend of films known as summer blockbusters. The 21st of June, 1831, and the foundation stone of the Clifton Suspension Bridge in Bristol at the Clifton End is laid, watched by Isambard Kingdom Brunel himself. On the 22nd of June, 1907, the London Underground's Charing Cross, Euston and Hampstead railway stations open. 
And lastly, on the 23rd of June, 1961, we see the Antarctic Treaty System. It was the first arms control agreement established during the Cold War, setting aside the continent as a scientific preserve, establishing freedom of scientific investigation and banning military activity. Since September 2004, the Antarctic Treaty Secretariat, which implements the treaty system, is headquartered in Buenos Aires, Argentina. Oh my word, what a packed show. What a horrific crime. Let me know what you think by contacting me. Now before I go any further, I have to thank the people who brought this show to life. And this week, we have Joe Wilson, Andrea Reid, Sam Roberts, Molly Jeffries and Kate Kendall, all from St Stephen's Drama Group in Bristol. And a new voice this week, a local listener, Rose Hales. Thank you, one and all. Thank you once again for listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking up at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. I also occasionally post onto TikTok and Instagram. So do come along and find me because it's amazing to hear from you and get some feedback or even ideas for future shows. As a small independent podcaster, your help and support is always appreciated. And one way you can do that is to rate the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leaving a review also helps as it gives other people an idea of what the show's about. The show is regularly released on Mondays. So until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. <laughs>